Welcome to Behavioural Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioural science and how it is made. You are joining me, Adam Ferris, a doctoral candidate at the University of Oxford studying behavioural environmental economics. Today, I have the great pleasure to introduce Marta Serra Garcia, who is Associate Professor of Economics and Strategy at the Ruddy School of Management of the University of California, San Diego. We will discuss the science and process behind Marta's forthcoming paper in the American Economic Review entitled Enabling or Limiting Cognitive Flexibility, Evidence of Demand for Moral Commitment, which she wrote with Associate Professor Sylvia Cicado. Marta, it is so nice to have you on the podcast. Hi, thank you very much. Marta, for those who have not read the paper yet, could you please give us a brief overview of what it's about? So the paper that we wrote with Sylvia started with the premise that individuals often wish to hold positive beliefs about themselves. One of these beliefs is thinking of themselves as moral, um, but that often conflicts with their material self-interests. So the question that one may ask is how do we reconcile those goals, seeing ourselves as moral, but also earning the material or financial benefits of being more self-serving? One way of doing so is um, distorting one's beliefs. So basically convincing oneself that one's behavior is moral, even though it, it, it may not be. The question that our paper asks is whether people want to have the scope to distort their beliefs and therefore act more self-servingly, even if that's a biased behavior, or whether they would actually prefer to limit their scope for behaving self-servingly and they would like more what we call moral commitment. Now, to uncover these preferences, we run several online experiments in which we put people in a potential moral dilemma. What we ask our participants to do is to act in the role of advisors who are recommending a product to someone who knows nothing about those products, but has to make a choice. Now, these advisors that are participants in our experiments, they know that prior to making their recommendation, they're gonna receive two pieces of information. One one piece of information is about their own incentive. So a commission they can receive for recommending a certain product. And the other piece of information is information about the quality of the product, which is obviously relevant for the person who's choosing between products. Now, advisors then have to decide how do they make these choices and how do they receive information? And what we wanna ask is, do people prefer to receive information in a way that is gonna give them more scope for forming self-serving beliefs for distortion of their own beliefs? Or do people prefer to receive information in a way that is going to restrict that flexibility and commit them to more moral behavior? What do I mean by a way of receiving information? What I mean is that based on previous work that we have done and other people had done, the order in which we receive information is really important. And we know that in moral dilemmas, if we first receive information or if the advisor first receives information about their own incentives, they're much more likely to act self-servingly and interpret information about the quality of the product that affects someone else in light of their own incentives. While if you reverse it and you first present advisors with information about the quality of the products before they know their own incentives, they're much more likely to think about the quality in an unbiased manner and be much more moral in the sense of recommending a product that is in the best interest of the client. So in our study, we're looking at those choices or preferences of advisors 
And we run several experiments in which we measure those preferences. We measure then the consequences for their subsequent recommendations. Um, and we try to make sure through different treatments that those preferences are not just noise, but that can they can be interpreted actually as either moral commitment or pursuing more flexibility, which we term cognitive flexibility. Perfect. Uh, thanks a lot for summarizing uh, what you do in this project. Now, let's delve into the production process of the paper. Um, first, how did the idea for this project come about? Um, yeah, so Sylvia and I um, have been working in the field of moral behavior and unethical behavior for quite a few years. And we came to this realization that there's a lot of work, really, really good work, showing that Yes, if you give people flexibility or the ability to distort beliefs, they interpret information in a self-serving manner and act self-servingly with distorted, quote-unquote, distorted beliefs. What we noticed had been, um, let's say, researched less or discussed less is do people actually want this ability to distort their behavior? And especially the idea that maybe some individuals, and we didn't know how many, prefer to commit themselves to having unbiased beliefs. So we see biased belief distortion coming out in a lot of the data, but we wanted to take a step back and say, do people want that flexibility? Or if they were given a choice, would there be people that prefer not to have the flexibility and form, let's say, less biased, less distorted beliefs? Um, you just mentioned your co-author for this paper, Associate Professor Sylvia Sacado at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, you'd mentioned you'd worked with her before, but how did you start working on, on this pro particular project? Yeah, that's a great question. So Sylvia was a graduate student at UCSD um, when I joined the faculty, and she was working in similar topics. So she had done research on moral and unethical decisions. And we had written a previous paper uh, with her, with then and also Urignisi, who uh, was her advisor, and a fourth co-author, Rulf and Feldhausen. Um, and so we had previous work together. When that work finished, we wanted to keep working on the topic. And through a series of discussions, we discovered, oh, we're both interested in this idea of do people want this flexibility? Are they, you know, are they anticipating the moral dilemmas that they will face, that they will potentially see information in biased manners? And what would they prefer? Um, and so that kind of triggered us to start working together on this project. Thank you. And I see from your previous papers that other than a few repeat co-authors like Professor Uri Knizi and James Andrioni, you have collaborated with many different academics. Was this deliberate? In general, do you, your co-authorship start in similar ways? So my choice of co-authors has been driven by a series of reasons. One is obviously someone working with someone who's interested in similar topics. Maybe I know their work and they know my work and it's been somewhat related, although not the same. And so that starts a conversation. And that leads to a collaboration, potentially. Sometimes it doesn't. 
Sometimes an important variable here is their availability and the location. So it's easier to work with someone who's in the same time zone. It's even easier to work with someone with whom you can bump to every day. So a lot of my collaborations have started or have been determined by people who are quote unquote in the same campus or geographically close, um, in addition to combining it with whatever interests they have. But I also think at conferences, you keep meeting people, people keep um, presenting their work and you see the relationship between theirs and your work. And that's first conversations. And sometimes, you know, from that you go to let's meet and discuss my new design. And then from that, if you're giving feedback to someone that could spur the idea, oh, we should, you know, do this in a different way. Should we go on with a project um, down this direction and start a collaboration? So I think both the knowledge and interest in the field with the availability or proximity of the co-author have been guiding principles in my in my experience. But everyone does it differently. It's about fin finding the formula that works for you. Speaking of collaborations, could I ask, how did you split the work with Sylvia over the course of this project? Did you take the lead on specific aspects? And more generally, how do you go about dividing up the work with your co-authors? That really depends on the project and on the senior-junior relationship of certain um, co-authors. So Sylvia and I started, and I think basically at the beginning, we were doing most of it together. So designing the experiment, um, setting up the Qualtrics, running. We obviously kind of had to split some parts, but it wasn't a very... Um, differentiated labor specialization. I do A and you do B and then we put a paper together. That wasn't our process because we both come from an experimental behavioral background. So we both did a lot at the beginning. I think later on when you have your first set of results and then you're writing up the paper, it could be that one splits. And in our case, you know, later on revising the paper, we split some parts um, and I focused more on ones and she focused more on others so that we would advance faster. But if, but this was more or less us being not very different in our career ages. When you're working and when I've worked with other co-authors who are more senior, um, I think often if I've been the more junior person, I've been more in charge of running the data collection, doing the data analysis. And then later on, when it's about drafting the paper, it's more collaborative. So it's both the senior and the junior co-author doing the writing. Um, but some parts of the data analysis or the data collection is something that the junior co-authors tend to do, or there may be an expectation that that happens, at least in a first step, before a senior person comes in and supervises or, or revises what's been done. Thanks. As PhD students uh, without prior experience, it is difficult to know the standard expectations and practices and collaborations. And I guess as PhD students, we are the junior researcher in uh, in most collaborations. Um, now, I would like to focus on the structure of the paper. Your paper has two main parts. First, an online experiment that manipulates order of information in an environment of potential conflict of interest. And then a second part anchored around a theoretical framework that builds off of Benabou and Tirol's uh, self-deception model. Could you describe the timeline for these two parts and how they complemented each other? 
So we came in to the project thinking uh, we want an environment in which there is a potential conflict of interest and we want an environment in which people can choose how much flexibility or yeah, flexibility or vagueness um, or scope for self-serving beliefs there is in the environment. So um, we first had to to get an experiment together that would show if we vary the order of information, so if people first see their incentives or if people first see the quality information that's really important for someone else, they're going to behave differently without them being given a choice, right? So just exogenously, I impose a certain information structure and I see that it matters for your subsequent behavior. So that was like part one. And then part two was, okay, once we know that that's, this is happening in this environment, we can then take the step back and design an experiment in which people are, you know, there's a previous phase in which people choose the order and then we see the subsequent behavior. So those were like the two main phases. First, establishing that exogenously varying the order affects behavior. And second, designing experiment an experiment with people in which people choose the order. Now, once we had the choice data, we did um, we did experiments in which people initially could choose for free. Um, and it was also in one of the treatments, it was costly to choose to see the incentive first. And later on, we expanded that and did more treatments in which we introduced different types of costs, in which we introduced additional tasks, in which we varied the incentives. So those were all add-ons that came later after we had our first main choice result. And regarding the actual theoretical framework that you added on? Yeah, so the theory came actually midway to late in the process. Um, and it it was something that came when we got the R&R. So when we submitted it, the initial submission didn't have the framework. And then some of the feedback we got is, well, it is difficult to know exactly what to expect and what the cognitive processes may be in this cognitive flexibility versus moral commitment if we don't have a framework around it. And there are frameworks out there that you that we could take and kind of simplify and apply to our environment. So we developed that let's say later in the po in the process and we still run more experiments kind of related to that theory but it came later and and this is also something that is um yeah that that happens in some papers the theory comes first um in others it comes later here it was kind of late in the process to help us formalize ideas that we kind of had talked about as hypotheses without a formal framework underneath them and in the case of this paper, I, I was glad we did that because it helped us think about what is exactly going on in this processing of the signals. And we think the mechanism of attention, you pay more attention to what you see first and then pay less attention to what happens later, was really helpful in, in formalizing, but in also us interpreting and understanding the data and looking for patterns related to that and testing them out in the data. Were you surprised by the findings you obtained or did you have preliminary evidence from pilot data, for instance, suggesting that the forces you observed might be at play? We had 
previous experiments with different designs that suggested this order will matter. So we had run in a previous paper order manipulations in the context of moral dilemmas, and we had seen these patterns at play. There's also other people's work that has shown it. So that body of evidence suggested, okay, we're going to see some patterns, but um, we, we didn't know exactly what the distribution of preferences would be. So I think that was also a, an important point going in when we were making this investment, thinking, okay, we're going to spend time, invest resources and money and, you know, our, all, all our efforts in this project. What happens depending on what results we obtain? And I, it's not always the case, but in this case, it was like, well, it's fine. Whatever we find is fine. We don't know if people are going to want moral commitment or if people are going to always prefer flexibility. But no matter what the result is, if we have a nice design, a clean design that, that shows a certain pattern of preferences in the data and we can manipulate them, let's say, change the incentive or change cost to see consistent results, that's going to be interesting documentation or an interesting phenomenon, no matter what, which, um, yeah, was helpful in going in um, for later and doing the data collection. Thanks. Uh, that's really interesting, Marta. Um, it's something that's never described in detail in the paper. You just see the final product. So it's uh, as a student, it's good to, to learn these things of, of what's happening behind the curtains, uh, so to speak. Um, so taking into account any trial and error phase, could you tell us how much time and effort went into the de development of your initial design? Did you encounter any dead ends or specific difficulties prior to the data collection? It's a good question. So we spent quite a lot of time designing the experiment, but we had the advantage that we had done related work earlier. So it wasn't starting from zero. We knew the literature, we knew similar designs. We knew what features we wanted because when once you have done prior work, you realize from your prior work what you could have done better. So you come in with all of that baggage, which helps start the design phase, um, let's say, in a much faster way. So we didn't, let's say, sometimes you're like, I'm interested in this question. Should I run version A of the experiment or version B? And then see if people understand, if it's easy to implement and for people to follow. We didn't have to do multiple versions because we knew, okay, it has to follow these certain features that we have been documenting in the past and that we want to add no matter what to this design here. Um, what took time was more once you have some first set of results, deciding what else you add on to them and what other treatments do we need to exactly document the patterns that we want to be documenting and to rule out certain alternative explanations. So I think the main result for us was relatively fast, but then it took time to develop all of the pieces around it to kind of make it a more solid finding. So I'm trying to tot up the, the time. I realize um, you're juggling multiple projects uh, at the same time. But I'm, again, I'm just trying to get to a number again. I'm going to push you for a number. Um, so you've got the experimental design. And before that, there were the concept discussions that you had with Sylvia. And on top of these, you have the data gathering, the data analysis, all the drafting st stages, the submission, and finally the corrections. Can you give us uh, a ballpark time span on the project as a whole? 
So say the final proofs were end of 2022. I would guess that early 2019, end of 2018. So maybe almost four years between starting data collection and finalizing the paper. So we submitted it in 2020, then received a revision request in 2021. And it took us almost a year to revise um, because the comments were significant and we had to do a lot of work that substantially improved the paper. So I think prior to submission, ballpark is one and a half years to two and post-submission around a year and a half, um, given the comments and the revisions and um, the iterations we, we did around that. I just want to dig in a little bit more uh, into those revisions. So you've just mentioned that even the drafting and submission turnaround time uh, was quite lengthy, two years, roughly. How many drafts of the paper do you think you produced and how did the paper evolve as a result of going through the peer review process? Prior to submission, we had many drafts um, and also quite a few informal or not not as informal conference presentations where we got a sense of what are the aspects that people like about the paper and what are the aspects that may be missing at this point. And so prior to submitting it to the journal, we sent it out also to a lot of people in the field to get a sense of what they like or what they don't like. These, um, you know, asking people for feedback on a paper that is lengthy is not something that is easy. Um, and so we weren't asking for feedback, read my 50 page paper and tell me, you know, everything I should be doing, but more the introduction. Could you read the three, four pages that we have as an introduction and give us a sense of what is clear, what is unclear, what would you see as important contributions? What do you think we're missing, let's say, relative to your work and other work in the field? Um, and so that process of drafting and redrafting, once we had the results, took, a let's say, half a year of back and forth. Then we submitted. We waited, I think, around eight months um, from submission to hearing back. And then when we heard back, it was clear that, you know, the paper still needed several um, points of improvement, including the theoretical framework, but um, also more experiments with higher stakes more experiments to document the mechanisms better. Um, so a bunch of different points that we that we saw as important and also as improving the paper. So sometimes the reviewers obviously are, are giving you comments that are highlighting weaknesses, but the changes that we added to the paper, and this is something that I really try to always do is to think, is this making my paper better? And that's what the process did of revision. So from the request for revisions to us submitting the paper back, it took us a year, but because both the theory and developing the experiments and running them took quite a bit of time. And then once you have new additions to the paper, they have to be put in in a way that the paper still reads well, right? In the way that the paper someone who has not been familiar with the process gets it on their desk and says, oh, this makes sense. It's not, we did A at the beginning, and then because of the revision, we added B. Um, that makes the read of the paper harder. And so we tried as much as possible to avoid that, but to blend it in into a new paper that was a much stronger. 
Brilliant. And if I can rewind to the to the beginning of a project, um, more generally, at the start of research projects, do you have a recurring strategy for identifying an idea as a winner um, and deciding whether it should be pursued or, or discarded? I think at the beginning of the project, you often have a sense, is this, am I going into interesting, unexplored territory that I'm very excited about, but I think I, you know, I still need to learn a lot and to discover a lot. So some, that often happens to me when I start a paper on a slightly different topic than what I've been doing thus far, because that's more uncovered. And that beginning in that way is really exciting. And I think it, when you're doing that kind of new exploration, new ideas, something that I don't think has been done much before, to determine whether it's a winner or not, it helps to talk to people about it. So to get a sense of when you are at the beginning stages where your question is not really defined, whether it sparks people's interest in what kind of things it makes them think about, right? So that, that gives you the sense, oh, am I going, do I really want them to be thinking about this? Or I'm thinking about the question differently and focus on something else. And so to identify a winner, it's more your excitement and your own interest in the project, but also having these early conversations with other people who can give you a sense of what they are excited about in what you're talking or what they don't understand in what you're talking, because you often yourself don't understand as much at the beginning as when, as later in the process. There's other projects where you've done a lot of work in that area. And so they're not as I'm exploring new terrain. It's I know this terrain and I know we need to do this. And so I think in those cases, you identify winners by thinking, okay, I have a very clear gap in mind in the literature. I know what the conditions are to make this gap, you know, a significant contribution. And there you may need less feedback or less idea generation or idea discussion with other people. You may just need to work on it and see what comes out. One of the recipes here that is also important is what I mentioned earlier, that ex ante, having a sense of no matter what comes out, both, let's say, a positive or a negative result are going to be interesting. And then also the question at the end is, what if I don't find anything? Do I still want to do it if, let's say, I'm testing treatment A versus treatment B, and there's not going to be much of a difference? Is this something that I personally still want to do? Or is this something that I think could be the stepping stone for something else? So sometimes I also think papers are a process of adding one interesting finding and then continuing. So sometimes it's like, do I have a first interesting finding? And then I can I can go on from there. Well, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing the, the, the different criteria uh, and the idea of the unofficial uh, friendly peer review uh, early on in the stages. That's really interesting. Um, and all things considered, uh, what do you think the most challenging aspects of this project were? Yeah, I think there's most of the challenge was finding a way to to explain the contribution of our paper that showed or translated what we thought was the contribution and why we thought it was important. The reason I'm saying this is because in the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years, there's been a lot of work on belief distortion in the moral domain. So there's 
a lot of experimental work that has shown, hey, people act selfishly um, and especially do so when they can come up with excuses for their behavior, when they can interpret their actions in a positive light. Um, and so one of the was, well, will people think this is another paper just documenting this type of phenomenon? And so we wanted to make sure that that wasn't the interpretation. Oh, it's just another paper in the bunch. So we spent a lot of time thinking and writing and rewriting and editing. How do we focus the paper in a way that we say, look, this is incredible, important work prior. We're going to take a step back and look at this that hasn't been looked at before. And, and it's hard to do, to do that well. So it takes some time or quite a lot of time to formalize that idea in, in writing. Thank you. And to wrap up on the, the subject of this particular project, is there anything you would have done differently with the benefit of hindsight? So you mentioned that this current paper was building on some previous uh, work that you had done, but was there something extra, even newer, that you discovered and might change in hindsight? That's a great question. Um, there's nothing off the top of my mind where I'm like, yes, this, this I would have done differently. Um, in the sense that I think we did the steps in the right way. Um, I think if, if you want to think about the paper and its evolution, you could say, well, maybe, you know, in certain, at certain early points, we spent time thinking about, um, let's say small additional tasks, um, I, we sketched the theoretical framework, but it wasn't really good. And so we spent some time thinking about that. And so obviously you can say in hindsight, I shouldn't have spent as much time on things that never come into the paper, but that happens all of the time with any research project. Um, so no, I don't think there's anything obviously um, salient to me that I would have done differently. No, of course. Uh, and I do understand that some of the friction is unavoidable. It's reoccurring in every single project. Uh, so that's good reassuring to know as well <laughs> for me. Um, so no, so thank you for uh, describing your experience in this particular project. In my last few questions, I was hoping you could give us some pointers about the academic career, the good and bad, the enjoyable and difficult as you see them from your own experience, but also those around you. Um, how does a normal day of work look like for you? How do you allocate your time? Um, yeah, great question. So a normal day of work will look like um, waking up relatively early, trying to get in half an hour to an hour of work prior to um, breakfast and family commitments because I have three young children. So then there's school drop off. And then most of my day, um, I try to find time where I'm going to be writing or doing some analysis and, and then kind of jump through meetings and think through my agenda of, well, I have some meetings. When is my time for writing research? When is my time for meetings and, you know, discussions about research? Um, in a normal work day, 
also maybe after dinner there may be some time again allocated to work so it's early in the morning some breaks because of family commitments and the desire to spend time with my family and then the usual work day will be a, a mix of meetings and time to myself to work on the projects i try not to have too many meetings to be honest so i'd rather avoid being in a lot of meetings and you know just meet if it's going to be about research um because as you uh, progress and you're like um, on committees, service and things like that, you could, if that's what you're interested in, then that's fine. But if your focus is on research, then the the time you have for it within a week in the end ends up being quite limited. So I try to maximize that. Um, and it doesn't have to be just sitting in front of a computer. It could be like having a conversation with a co-author while we go out for a walk or uh, being on the phone with someone talking about a research project, but not, let's say, side meetings that are not really research focused, but maybe focus on teaching or planning or initiatives that are very important for any university, but but not, I have decided they are not my priority, right? So I think another important component here is to to start the week or even start your month or your year setting a list of your priorities and then trying to allocate the time according to them, which is hard to do. That involves saying no to, to some things, obviously. Thank you for, for sharing that. It's interesting to hear how many things you're juggling and how you're going about juggling them in, a, an, efficient, in, a, in an efficient way, but also, as you were just saying, focusing on what your criteria is or what your goals are, your targets uh, for your own pathway. Um, Okay, I have another question. So if a student at any level of education, undergraduate, master's or PhD, says they are interested in pursuing a career in academia, what do you think are the key factors they should consider upfront? That's a great question. Um, so I think at a later stage when, when you're at a PhD level, so you're doing, you've done coursework and you're doing your own research, then, you know, pursuing a career in, academ in academia means, am I passionate about my research field? So do I see that I'm excited about what other people do and I'm excited about what I do every day? And am I okay with doing this mostly on my own, being kind of a solo agent with lots of friends, but but basically fighting and being your yourself your own product? Um, if you're fine with that and you're passionate about what you're doing, then it's easier to deal with what everyone deals in academia, which is a lot of rejection, right? You apply for grants, you don't get them. You apply, you send papers out, they get rejected, right? There's a few wins, but there's also a lot of rejection underneath. And so I think that's okay as long as you're like, well, I'm passionate about the work that I am doing and it will get better and eventually it will be published because I like when I sit in front of the computer and I'm typing and I'm writing or I'm doing my graphs or my analyses, I'm excited to do that, right? Like that excitement for the work you're doing would be, I think, one of the things to try to detect within yourself because academia is full of self-doubt, imposter syndrome. You know, it's hard to see yourself given the competitive landscape that we all face, right? There's always someone who's further ahead and has done accomplished more than you have. If you measure yourself against others, which is natural, 
but do not have the underlying passion and interest in your own work, no matter what others say, then it's hard to continue. So I would kind of try to do that assessment. I think earlier on, undergrad or maybe master, um, I think just being curious. I like reading the books that I'm reading. I like understanding why, you know, this textbook is written in this way. I read this one paper, at least my experience, for example, in undergrad, I read this one or two papers that I thought were really, really interesting and I wanted to know more about. I took an experimental class and I thought this is fun. So for me, that was just, I am I think this is interesting and fun and I'd like to do more. And I wasn't strategic necessarily about, I want to pursue a career in academia. What does it mean to be a professor? Things like that, that I think nowadays are much more salient at earlier stages, it can be good, but it can also put a lot of pressure and discourage on the other hand. So up to the person's balance of these things. <laughs> no, that, that makes sense. Thank you. And finally, to conclude this podcast, what single piece of advice would you give to early career researchers trying to, to write that golden publishable paper? I think I would perhaps question the golden publishable paper, right? So I would start by saying, you know, if I am an early research or career researcher, can I go to conferences or reach out to people, send them my draft? And what do I learn in that process? Is it, we try to, th or I think we often think, oh, I have to produce this excellent piece of work and then people will be impressed. But if you look into what a lot of people do that are very successful is they start talking about initial ideas that are not very good with a lot of people. And those ideas get better and better and better. And so I think maybe a single piece of advice is to try to, to be open to presenting preliminary things with, you know, within a circle of people who you know, who have your best interest in mind, obviously. You don't go around, you know, presenting yourself with an early idea when you're looking for a job and you're in a job interview, right? But you have certainly lots of people around you, peers. Um, it could be fellow PhD students, fellow peers from your undergrad, master's, PhD program. Talk to them, talk to your advisors, friends of your advisors, people who in a conference will come to your talk and seem interested and ask questions. Try to get this early feedback and early sense of, am I answering a question? Do they know what question I'm answering? Do they think that the approach that I'm taking is a good one? If not, what is it that they would change? And it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to change everything in response to everyone's advice. But if you believe in your work, you're taking it seriously, you're not, let's say, playing a game, how do I publish this, right? Do I need to talk to editor A or do I need to be friends with B? Maybe that's a strategy for some people, but but I'm not, I think it's really important, at least in my view, to think, am I doing research in the right way? Am I producing work that people think is of high quality? Do they understand what I'm trying to bring to the table? And will my work help future work? And, and that also means having work that is replicable, that is well done, that is well documented. So putting emphasis both on the quality and on getting feedback early would be things that I 
I have learned to do over time. I hope I'm still learning, but I think it's it's really helpful down the line. Not maybe not short term, right? So, but long term. That's brilliant. Thank you. So it's, it seems to be a question of shifting the focus from the the end goal to the intermediate steps that really help build up the project and the research idea. Um, thank you so much, uh, Marta, for your, your candid answers to all of my questions today. As a, as a student starting off their academic career, it's very interesting to hear your process, notice some of the patterns and indeed the, the heterogeneity in how project seeds are, are sown. Um, it is also important to be aware of the potential pitfalls and difficulties that surely happen during an academic uh, career. Um, again, these aren't the details that you get uh, in, in a paper when you're reading it, um, so there's no reference point. <laughs> anyway, so thank you so much for, for taking part in the podcast as well. Thank you.